Okay. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, on Wednesday, the Bank of Canada raised its interest rate by nearly a full percentage point to a full course of booing. My first guest, Philip Cross, Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, says that's the only real solution coming from on high to cool inflation. Well, money talks and the premiers at their summit decided they want more money, more federal funds for health care, but it's not that simple. John Michael McGrath shed some light on that for us. And the Toronto Blue Jays, turf manager, Charlie Montoya. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the other uh, big stories yesterday, of course, was the announcement by the Bank of Canada rate to hike the rate by a full percentage point, uh, which has outraged some people. And uh, other uh, economists have looked at it and say, well, it's about time, uh, Mr. Macklin. It's, you know, this is what we need to do. Uh, there's an interesting piece uh, that was published in the Financial Post about this, too. The author of the piece, Philip Cross, is a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's also a former Chief Economic Analyst at Stats Canada. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about the piece and to talk about strategy uh, going forward. Uh, Phil, th- Philip, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show today. Are we there? Yes. Oh, we can barely hear you. I'm sorry. We'll see. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, um, sorry. I, I guess I didn't have the phone in the, the proper position. Is that <laughs> uh, better? Oh, welcome to the club. Oh, yeah, much better today. Yeah, yeah. It's. It, I've been doing this for two and a half years, and I think I'm just now starting to get the hang of it. So I, we'll we'll suffer <laughs> through this together. <laughs> uh, judging from the piece, uh, I, I put you in the latter category of what I was just talking about here, of, of economists that say, "Look, at this is what needed to be done right from the get go," and it looks like the the Bank of Canada is, is now catching up to where they should be and what they should be doing. Is is that a fair statement? Oh, very much so. Um... Yeah, they should have been doing this from the get-go. Uh, in fact, they acknowledge, you know, late last year, early this year, that the economy was at full employment, and they still didn't tighten monetary policy. So you kind of wonder, you know, what were you waiting for? Uh, inflation's clearly been moving up for over a year now, so it's long overdue, and I think the fact that they raised it a full point and, and kind of surprised people with the size of the increase reflects that they they know there's catching up to do, that they're behind the curve, and... Um, but, you know, eventually they'll get ahead of it because uh, the Bank of Canada, they only have one job, and that's fight inflation. Uh, you know, they, they, they have to do this. Uh, but they seem reticent uh, in, in the past. As you say, it's not as if there weren't warning signs about this, uh, but they seem to want to take an incremental approach to it as well. Was uh, the, the the final straw the fact that even though they were doing this on an incremental basis, although, of course, the last one was, was 75 points, uh, that, uh, that inflation wasn't going down? and the, In other words, what they were doing was not working. No, I don't think what the actual behavior of the CPI explains why there's sort of a sense of panic in the Bank of Canada and other central banks these days. I think what's driving them now is the fear that, I mean, they know they've lost the control of inflation in the short term. Uh, what they don't want to see is that become embedded in the system. And we're starting to see inflationary expectations of both households and businesses start to move up. We're starting to see wage increases move up. That means we're in the early stages of a wage price spiral. Uh, and you, you'll see Macklem talk openly about we have to avoid that. Uh, yes, it's unfortunate we let inflation get out of control in, in the very short term, but we can't let it become embedded in the system. And I think that's what, they're, that's what really scares them. 
what role does government have to play in this? And you, you went into some detail in the piece uh, that was in the, the Financial Post about how governments, some governments, uh, different governments, uh, have responded to this and tried to, to fix the problem. Uh, and oftentimes uh, the, the fix, and I use that term advisedly, uh, made situations worse. Uh, is this really something that the Bank of Canada should be dealing with before it gets so bad that the government feels as if they have to intervene? Well, yeah, we've seen governments, you know, the response of most governments is to try to insulate or protect households from the effects of rising inflation. And it's very well-intentioned, and I quite understand what they're trying to do. But by mailing checks to households, like in, in Ontario, every everybody owns a car, got $500 when they renewed their license. Quebec, everybody's getting $500. Ontario and Alberta are both uh, reducing gas taxes to try to cushion the impact on people. These are all very well-intentioned, but they actually made the Bank of Canada's job harder to do. Because overall, the reason we have inflation is that demand is higher than supply. And whenever, if you give people more money or if you lower gas taxes, what you're doing is further boosting demand. And that's just, unfortunately, it's just going to aggravate the overall problem of inflation in the short term. And the Bank of Canada is going to have to work even harder and raise interest rates even more. So... It's a it's a bit of a self defeating policy, as well intentioned as it is. And and as you mentioned in the piece, though, and uh, governments in various ways all seem to be guilty of that at one time. I mean, they want to, I guess, at the one hand, uh, they want to be fiscally responsible. At least they say they do, anyway. Huh. But on the other hand, they want to you know show that they can be compassionate. Hey, things are pretty rough for you guys these days. Here's something to try to to get you over this. Uh, but it's probably the wrong tool to use, and they probably know it's the wrong tool to use. Uh, but, you know, these people that are in elected office kind of like to get reelected. Kind of like to get reelected, but, you know, history also shows that if you overdo the stimulus, and clearly we overdid stimulus during the pandemic and coming out of it, what you're going to get is higher inflation and then higher interest rates. If there's one thing the electorate doesn't like, it's higher prices and, and the interest rates that go with it. I mean, my former colleagues at Statistics Canada recently produced a survey where 75% of Canadians said that prices were so high it was affecting their day-to-day decisions to purchase. And of that, one quarter of people were saying, I'm having trouble making, uh, meeting, um, making payments for necessities like food, a roof over my head, gasoline in my car so I can get to work. Uh, so people are already really suffering. So, you know, we talk about, the left likes to talk about, well, higher interest rates are going to be painful. That's pain down the road. Right now, though, most Canadians are already suffering from higher inflation. And we have to, in the Bank of Canada, and, and I think the public discussion, has to focus on the pain that people are feeling right now. And we saw in the 70s and 80s, eventually people got fed up with inflation. They turned to conservative governments. Uh, Brian Maroney here in Canada, Margaret Thatcher in Britain, Ronald Reagan in the United States, uh, who promised that with conventional fiscal and monetary restraint, we'll bring inflation under control, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, not without some debate and argument, though, and and and, and I guess it's 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 the rational, I guess, here for government to simply say, okay, let's look at where we're spending the money uh, and to who we're giving it to. Uh, and, you know, this is when you get into the debate about means tests and does everybody need a guaranteed income supplement when they turn 65? Uh, but there was a time in this country where everybody got the check no matter who they were. 
Uh, and and it takes it takes courage of a government to say no. You you don't need that. That family does. You don't. Yeah. Well, although you know, inflation is that's a hard time uh, to bring in uh, cutting people off because everybody is feeling the effects of higher inflation. That's one reason why inflation is so unpopular. Is it affects everybody, rich and poor. I mean. You know, the, the burden of filling up a gas tank, of, of putting food on the table, becomes difficult for everyone to meet. Everybody's purchasing power. I'm not aware of a lot of people whose, whose wages are rising 8 9% today. So if your standard of living is falling, it doesn't really matter whether you're middle class or lower class. You're feeling the pinch from this. So uh, that's one reason why conservative governments were elected in the 80s, and then they were re-elected. Yes, there was controversy around them, but these, uh, all these governments won back-to-back mandates. Uh, because they, I guess people were seeing that there was an impact on buying power and things of this nature. But where do you find the middle ground uh, from, a, from a, a political standpoint here? Uh, to try to balance that out, to show some compassion, but at the same time be fiscally responsible and, and understand that there's going to have to be some t- tough decisions. Historically, it seems as if, you know, we, we kind of go overboard or governments go overboard an awful lot of the time, but so do we with our spending. Uh, and then we've got a higher, you know, a big bad finance minister like a Michael Wilson or even Paul Martin when he took over uh, to make really tough decisions and, and yeah. you know, make some cuts that uh, nobody really seems to like, but they're very necessary. That's the point. Yes, they are very necessary. Once you get to the point where inflation is high and becoming entrenched, there's really no easy way out. You're going to have to make some difficult decisions that, that lower demand, uh, and to the degree that you, you don't help out in the fiscal side, you're going to have even higher interest rates. I mean, there's no easy way out in this one. Governments have got themselves in a very nasty pickle uh, across North America and in many parts of Europe, because they they kept they overstimulated the economy during the pandemic. But the real mistake was, as we came out of the pandemic, they didn't rein in that stimulus quickly. I mean, yes, we were in an emergency during the pandemic, but the emergency didn't last more than two or three months. We kept these programs for well over a year, uh, and we didn't target those programs well to just those people who, who needed them. Uh, instead, what we saw was Canadians, for example, built up a good $200 billion of excess savings during the pandemic. That's because uh, Canadians' incomes rose substantially. We didn't replace income lost during the pandemic. We Canadians made more money during the pandemic. That's unheard of during a, an economic downturn. Uh, and it was, you know, it was very popular at the time. Uh, the problem was when you give people more income without increasing your productive capacity, then demand's going to outstrip supply, and that's just a recipe for inflation. How do we deal with a mindset that governments, and, and again, I'll, I'll you say you, it's not just here in North America, certainly in Canada and the U.S., but over in the U.K. as well, uh, seem comfortable with large deficits now they just say well that's just the way things are going to have to be for the next little while uh i mean economists must be spinning around and say what are you people thinking with that seems to be the mindset too often which yep. leads us to believe that well this is going to continue then until they they finally find some 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 commonality here and say wait a second what we're doing here is not working well i think the uh, those people who think deficits are uh 
don't have consequences. I mean, those governments, they have to be very scared today because the the bill on the, their interest payments on that bill are about to go up substantially, uh, and the economy is about to slow down. So uh, revenues are going to go down, expenditures are going to go up, uh, expenditures are going to go to bondholders. Uh, it, it's an unpleasant situation. And, um, you know, the idea that deficits didn't have consequences you know, that's what a lot of people thought over the last decade, and especially during the pandemic when interest rates were at zero. People are about to learn or are in the process of learning that deficits do have consequences. But as as you mentioned in the piece, uh, with rising interest rates, which is the the, the, the bad medicine, the unta- you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's the Buckley's cough syrup, I guess, that we need for our economy right now. Nobody likes it, but it works. Yeah. Uh, with that, though, as you say, there are going to be consequences. As you, the economy is likely to slow down, uh, there may be a recession. They're already predicting one uh, before the end of the year, uh, and that means job loss. Uh, so there are going to be there's going to be collateral damage from this. Yes, there will. Um, but we have programs, targeted programs, employment insurance, and benefits to to unemployed people to help them out. Whereas. You know, um, as I say, 100% of Canadians are suffering from higher prices right now. So, uh, you know, to avoid this problem, you know, the only thing you could have done is gone back in time and started to slow down this stimulus much earlier. But we're in a, a very difficult position right now of higher prices. The only cure for that is uh, is apparently monetary restraint because we're not getting any fiscal restraint at the moment. Uh, it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful for people who lose their jobs. It's going to be painful for investors. I mean, there's, you know, we've seen what's happened to the stock market already. Um, you know, this is going to be painful. It's too late to worry about that, though. I mean, if people were really worried about that, then they should have slowed down the stimulus party before inflation took off and risk becoming entrenched. But we're late to the game now, uh, and... Uh, Unfortunately, there's there's going to be a price to be paid to to correct inflation at this point. So clearly, the Bank of Canada has has realized that. Uh, have governments, uh, or you know, are they still on the the path and got them into this situation? Uh, you know, we just mentioning about you know governments that have to take over. I mean, Boris Johnson's going to be stepping down. Uh, you know, the, the the prime minister who's going to take over there is going to have a huge fiscal uh, concern and problem with what the UK has done. They're in the same circumstance that we are here as yep. as the Biden administration is in the states. Yeah, there's uh, you know, and there's no recognition. I mean, you look at what governments are doing. All our major provincial governments are still running deficits. The federal government is still running a large deficit. When you're running a deficit, you're still uh, injecting fiscal stimulus into the economy. That's frankly absolutely crazy. In an economy that's at full employment, where the number one problem in the labor market is not unemployment, but that employers can't find enough people to fill their positions, adding stimulus is madness. Uh, and yet, you know, nobody is ready to to completely withdraw stimulus. And, you know, the longer they hesitate to do that, the more... The Bank of Canada is the only game in town fighting inflation, and they're just going to have to raise interest rates even more. And you're going to get more uh, surprisingly large interest rate hikes like the full point increase the bank brought about yesterday. 
Uh, and that seemingly was the message we got from the Bank of Canada, even when they did the press conference, not even after the announcement, just say, look at this. This is this is not a one-time thing. So uh, yep. I guess that was the, the warning for us all. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for the time today. Great piece in the uh, in the paper. Uh, they can read that, of course, for themselves and, uh, and get a look at what's going on uh, from a, a, a big picture here, what the, the economics and the finances and the role the government has to play. Always appreciate your time. Thanks so much for this today. Good talking to you. Thank you. Take care. Philip Cross uh, from Monk Senior Fellow, of course, at the McDonald Lowry Institute and a former uh, economic analyst with uh, Stats Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Premier's uh, met, of course, in B.C. earlier this week. Uh, they, we were told they had a full agenda, but they and they talked about a few other things. But prevalent among all of those, of course, was health care. And uh, as I mentioned just a couple of seconds ago, it's rare that you can get all the premiers and, and the leaders of the territories to agree on anything unanimously, but they did. And 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 the agreement, the point of agreement was, uh, we, yeah, the federal government's got to give us more money for health care. That's all there is to it. Uh, but as uh, John Michael McGrath writes uh, in his piece uh, for uh, TVO.org, who's going to blink first? I mean, we've got another stare down. This is not the first time this has happened, especially when it comes to health care. How's it going to work out this time, or is it going to work out? Uh, the author of the piece, John Michael McGrath, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, John, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me. A uh, great piece, by the way. As a matter of fact, we just referenced one of your pieces, of that, the one that you did a couple of days ago about housing, uh, and, and uh, always very poignant stuff. It's great to get you on here to talk about this one. Because I think it's a, it's a question a lot of us are asking these days. I mean, healthcare. every time you talk to 10 citizens on the street and say, you know, what's the number one issue with our governments? It's always going to be health care. Uh, and, and we're getting two arguments about this, not for the first time, as you mentioned in the piece here. I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, uh, when the provinces and the feds argue about this, there's always a little bit of fact and a little bit of fiction. And it's pretty difficult for the average citizen to figure out which is which. No, there is. And I, I think, you know, at the moment you have uh, the, the 13 provincial and territorial premiers basically saying, like, we cannot afford to to keep uh, covering the freight of, uh, you know, more than 80 percent of uh, the healthcare spending in this country. Of course, when Medicare was first brought in as a federal program, the federal government promised to, to match 50 percent of the expenses that the provinces incurred. And that fraction keeps shrinking and shrinking um at the same time you know healthcare is a provincial responsibility and it always has been since you know 1867 um and so the federal government can say like you know fairly you know okay yes uh, we do continue the federal government does continue to help uh with these uh these expenses but this is always fundamentally going to be um a, a provincial responsibility and the provinces have access to most of the same big tax levers that the federal government does. You pay a a personal income tax to both the province and the feds. You pay uh, corporate income taxes to both the province and the feds. Uh, you know, uh, uh, gas taxes, uh, beer and wine taxes. You know, uh, the provinces, the federal governments collect most of the same taxes. Uh, and you know, the the real difference between the two is that uh, the provinces' obligations uh, just tend to be a lot more expensive. Uh, you know, we can get into a whole other discussion there, but um, it, it's. Uh, it, it really is a muddle. And at the moment, of course, uh, you have a healthcare system that still hasn't recovered from COVID and uh, both uh, the, the, the healthcare workers in uh, these hospitals and also patients are, are sort of caught in the middle. <laughs> and you could be, uh, you could fairly be quite you know frustrated as a patient, you know, saying like, somebody stop arguing and figure it out and fix it. Cause you know, I'm waiting 24 hours for a nurse to see me in an ER. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What about the numbers? Because that, that seems to be a sticking point. It always has been, as you say. I mean, you know, those who are listening who maybe remember back in the mid-60s when this whole program came into play, the 50-50 split seemed like, oh, that, that's reasonable. Okay. Uh, and now the, the premiers maintain that the, the, the federal sp- uh, portion of this is now 22%. Uh, Health Minister DeClaude just, you know, kind of fired back the other day and said, well, no, 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 no. What about the tax points? You know, that's that's right. billions of dollars as well. Uh, and, and that changes those numbers dramatically. And, of course, they're saying, well, no, that doesn't really count. And they're going back and forth on this. Uh, I, I, they're haggling over numbers about this. and But at the same time, there's only one taxpayer. And I guess a lot of us are just saying, look, can you just do something about <laughs> the system instead of haggling about, uh, you know, the, these percentage points? Right. So uh, if if, uh, if I can take a minute, I, I think I can add yeah, some please. clarity to this whole tax points thing, because the, the federal government has been using that as a, a, a response to the premiers uh, saying, you know, hey, uh, the federal government transferred a bunch of tax points. This is basically saying that you know, the, the last big time this happened was in the 1970s, where the federal government basically uh, cut its corporate uh, taxes and made room for the provinces to increase their corporate taxes. So they they gave up some room. Uh, if you were a corporation, you didn't pay any more taxes overall. It's just that more of that money went to the provinces than to the federal government. And at the time, that was uh, a, a, a deliberate choice by the federal government to give uh, some more uh, tax room to the provinces, uh, reflecting the fact that they had the uh, responsibility for healthcare. And as you move forward in time, you know that uh, that tax room has become more valuable. Right, corporations get wealthier and they pay more uh, money in taxes. And so the federal government's uh, answer is basically like, you know, last year that tax room that we gave up in the 1970s generated 20 billion dollars in revenue for the provinces. Um, I think the provinces could fairly say, well, okay, fine. That was that was fine in 1970. It's 50 years later. The population has gotten about a decade uh, older on average. The median age has gone up by a decade. So we have more sick people, more people needing care. Uh, and it just doesn't reflect the, uh, the, the, the increasing costs that you have in 2022. And also $20 billion is kind of a drop in the bucket for healthcare spending across the country. It's not even a very large fraction of Ontario's healthcare budget. So, you know, I'm I'm less sympathetic to the the federal government's claim there. And you know, two two wild cards here because you know Justin Trudeau did say last fall during the the federal campaign, uh, yeah, the, the provinces are going to get more money. Let's get over this COVID thing, and then we'll sit down and talk about it. Why hasn't that happened yet? Well, um, I, I, the first thing is that you know we're not all the way over COVID yet. Um, but you know, there's also a fundamental. But we may never be, according to what the medical experts are telling well, us. Well, yeah, but we exactly, still have to deal right? with the healthcare issue, right? Um, but yes, and so the 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 bigger, more fundamental disagreement, and and you see this um, the, the the real disagreement between the the provinces and the feds is not money versus no money coming from Ottawa. It's uh, will there be strings on the money versus yeah. what the premiers want, which is basically no strings attached. They want uh, they don't want uh, um, any conditions from the the money that Ottawa spends. But you know the the federal government not unreasonably in some cases you know you look at uh recent examples in ontario and quebec and and lord knows we can look at other uh, provinces where uh you know 
these are provinces that continue to, to cut taxes, that continue to cut things like uh, gasoline taxes or, or uh, you know, various other fees, uh, road tolls here in Ontario. Uh, you know, that was something that the government did just before the, the election. Um, you know, these are governments that are, you know, giving up a lot of their own revenue generating power and then turning around the next day and saying to Ottawa, hey, hey, we're, we're so hard on cash, you got to give us more money. So, you know, here's the point where I think the federal government is a bit more on a bit more solid ground where they can say like, yeah, you know, we're willing to provide money, but we don't want to see it just disappear into uh, to be a bit crude about it, like the Doug Ford and the Francois Legault re-election funds. <laughs> well, that's a, it's a, it's a legitimate point. You know, you get a $500 check from the government, you know, and Doug says, you know, I'm going to look after you guys. And then he's banging on the door saying, I need more money for health care. It, it's a legitimate argument. You know, it's it's like, you know, when a kid asks the, the father for the allowance, you know, what, where's the money I gave you last week? Uh, well, I gave it away. Uh, you know, <laughs> go get it back. You know, So there's that. And, and, and that's frustrating, I guess. And so that's their back and forth on this. But but as you mentioned in the piece, you know, while they're doing all this and arguing about who's giving money away and how much is all this is going on, uh, the system is not fixing itself. And and we're not having much of a discussion about that. We, we seem stuck on money. And I understand money is a is a big factor in this. But uh, it, it just seems as if they figure, OK, that's a common ground for us to, to argue about. Uh, but they're not talking about how they can improve the system at all. Not at this point anyway. No, and, and that is something that I think, you know, th- there's probably some agreement between the federal and provincial governments about uh, the need for reform in Canadian healthcare spending. Um, you know, Canada spends uh, quite a lot by international standards on healthcare relative to the outcomes we get. Um, and in Ontario, uh, we, we spend quite a bit of money, but we also have fewer beds uh, per capita in places like hospitals and ICUs than uh, other provinces. So, you know, some of it is actually a need for new investment. And, and also remember that like reform, like reforming the healthcare system can also be expensive. Um, you know, one one nuclear option for the provinces, uh, I don't think they're going to go there, but it's, you know, at least a possibility that, that you know, your readers or your listeners rather uh, should be aware of is, you know, that 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 fraction of the federal uh, health care spending that has shrunk over the last, you know, 60 years or so. Uh, at a certain point, uh, it, you know, there are conservative run provinces out there that might decide it is simply not worth all of the conditions that the federal government imposes on uh, public nonprofit uh, uh, healthcare, uh, and they may just decide that um, you know they want to adopt you know a more private uh, uh, you know for-profit healthcare in their provinces. You already see this happening at the margins in some provinces, including in, in Ontario, for the record. Um, but uh, you know. I, I don't know how much longer the current status quo can go before, uh, you know, and I'm thinking maybe Alberta or Saskatchewan before a premier there says, you know what, the federal money isn't worth it. We're going to just give up the, uh, the, the the Canada health transfer. That that money's not worth it. We're going to let private companies come in and open their own, uh, if not full-blown hospitals, then some kind of uh, secondary treatment center. Yeah, I remember Alberta has been threatening that. Uh, long before Jason Kenney was even there too. Uh, and then the feds come, they, they counter and say, well, we're going to give you, you're not getting any money from us then. 
Uh, Andrew Coyne, I don't know if you saw the piece in the, the Globe and Mail the other day, simply said, look, just give them all the points. Just forget it. There's, there's no transfer anymore. Uh, just increase the, the, the system that's out there, you know, the tax points, and let these guys do what they want with it. And then they're totally responsible. I don't think they're going to that extreme either. So the, you've got to find some, some place where these guys are going to find some consensus. But what about that accountability, though? I mean, I can understand the province telling them, hey, you know, healthcare is our responsibility. You can't tell us how to spend the money. Uh, but are they not at least beholden to us to tell us how they did spend it? Uh, you know, we'd like to see how much of this went to this, how much went to this. You know, we keep hearing. How many times do we hear there's more money for long-term care? You talk to people in those facilities and they say, I don't see any improvements. So, you know, there, there's that accountability right now. So they're throwing darts at each other. And, and like you say, there's a little legitimacy and a little baloney behind a lot of the stuff that's going on here. Uh, but who's going to be the, the, the adult in the room and say, OK, let's just let's let's work on this. Well, so long as they are asking for federal money uh, to to do what they want in healthcare, I think there's a totally fair argument from the federal government's perspective to say, like, okay, uh, if you want our money, we're going to impose some oversight, some accountability. Now, it's worth saying that Stephen Harper didn't do that. Stephen Harper, instead of getting into the nitty gritty of like how, you know, X dollars are spent and, you know, how uh, services are delivered, he just set the health transfer to uh, uh, an, a, 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 what he thought was a sustainable increase over a number of years the provinces howled because it wasn't as much as they wanted. But Stephen Harper said, here's money. Uh, I'm not going to negotiate with this anymore. <laughs> and basically called it a day. Uh, he he and, basically you know, threw it said, on the table and said, you guys do what you want with it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, on the tax point issue, I think there the argument would be like if the federal government simply gives up the tax room to the provinces, then the accountability becomes up to the uh, provincial voters and to, yeah. uh, you know, here in Ontario, we have like an auditor general and a financial accountability officer and a, a healthcare ombudsman. And there the accountability would become more um, the, the sort of the regular levers that we have to hold the, the provincial governments accountable on any uh, area of policy, because then it just becomes a matter of the provincial government spending provincial revenue um, on, on its own provincial projects. Um, and and I, th I think there's an argument for that. Uh, and and uh, over the long term, I think that that's probably going to be necessary, at least to some extent, because uh, the, the elephant in the room that we really haven't talked about specifically here is that, of course, healthcare spending is like quite aside from COVID, healthcare spending is just going to keep getting more and more expensive, uh, almost no matter what we do in terms of uh, provincial policy uh, over the next 20 years. Uh, and, and, you know, every substantial look at this issue from the federal parliamentary budget officer to the FAO here in Ontario, uh, they have all said that uh, the federal government is in a much stronger fiscal position than any of the provinces are, and certainly than uh, provinces with rapidly aging populations like Ontario is. So uh, at some point, uh, either you, the province is going to need to just raise taxes to cover those federal, uh, uh, sorry, those healthcare expenses, the federal government will have to increase transfers, or you have to talk about moving tax room, uh, tax points around because there's just like the math does not work uh, any other way. 
And there's the biggest frustration, I think, and they can both agree on that. Is is you know they're throwing money at it, and and as you mentioned in in the piece, uh, you know we spend more money per person on healthcare than most other developed nations, and and we're not getting the results that we want. And I guess we look over to places like some of the Scandinavian countries or even the UK and say, how come they're getting better results? You know, they don't, and we got to learn from that, I guess. And you know, which begs the question: Is it? Is it the system needs more money, or is it just we have to reallocate where that money goes? And and that that's got to be part of the discussion too. But then you're getting into responsibility, and governments always like to kind of shift the blame. Uh, they, well, with responsibility comes uh, you know accountability, and and that, that's pretty tough these days at any level of government to try to attain that. Oh, it absolutely is. And then, you know, to, to give the Ford government its credit here, you know, before the pandemic, they were trying to do some pretty substantial structural reforms of yep. the sort of the administration of healthcare, right? You know, the creation of Ontario Health was, you know, uh, rearranging all of the, the administrative stuff uh, of our healthcare system. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Matt Anderson, the head of Ontario Health has been a key part of Ontario's uh, COVID response. And I think a lot of people, uh, certainly in my reporting, when I've spoken to people in hospitals, uh, you know, I haven't found anybody with a lot of bad things to say about Matt Anderson, let me put it that way. Um, but, uh, you know, you, I, I would say that there was absolutely a question of, of uh, you know, reform and reallocating where some of that money goes. Um, but I, I, I do think that there's there's probably no way to do what we want the public healthcare system to do uh, over the next generation that isn't going to involve at least some more money, uh, and and I would say probably quite a bit more, just given the the aging population alone. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I just referenced uh, Scandinavia and the UK. They, they pay more for healthcare there, a lot more than we do yes. here. Uh, and but they get you know you get what you pay for. I guess that's the old uh, axiom. Uh, that may be applicable here too, and but it's always difficult for governments to say, okay, we're going to have to increase your cost on that. Uh, but uh, because we've developed this mindset, I know you guys have talked about this in the past with some of the pieces you've written, uh, where there's still too many of us, I think, that just think healthcare is free because uh, we don't yeah. pay. You know, if we have to go to the ER or something like that, it doesn't come out of our pocket, uh, and we don't understand, I guess, the magnitude of it. What's I, I know we're almost out of time. What's the percentage right now, just off the top of your head? And I don't, don't mean to throw a curveball at you here. Uh, it used to be about 52 cents out of every dollar here in Ontario went to healthcare. It's it's still in that ballpark, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's about that. I don't have the the, the latest number from no, uh, the the 2022 budget, but it's it's certainly it is the largest uh, the, the the health sector broadly construed is is the largest single mm-hmm. chunk of provincial spending. It's about twice as much as education spending, and uh, the other you know stat I sometimes throw out is like the Ontario Ministry of Health budget alone is larger than the entire provincial budget for like five provinces. So it's it's an enormous sum. Well, we'll be watching to see how this unfolds over the next little while. A great piece again. People can go to uh, the webpage, tpo.org, and uh, and read uh, what John Michael's got to say about this. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you so much for this today. Stay well. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. John Michael McGrath, a digital media producer with TVO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I got to tell you, watching what's going on in Major League Baseball this year, it's been a fascinating year in so many different ways, but there are always winners and losers, as you might expect. Uh, and I don't know that too many people figure that the the first manager to get canned, because there's always one or two every season, uh, would be from the Toronto Blue Jays. But that happened yesterday uh, when the uh, uh, Jays announced that Charlie Montoya has been relieved of his duties. 
So what's going on? Why? And, uh, and, and what are the implications? Talk about that. We're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Josh Goldberg, who is a baseball journalist, of course, with The Score. Josh, uh, great to have you back on the show. I hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, I am, Bill. Certainly a, a crazy last 24 hours uh, around the baseball team in this market. And uh, I think a lot of people were caught off guard. But like, uh, as were you? you take the 40,000-foot the view, I was in the moment. And then as I thought back to it, I, I really wasn't. They've been playing really bad baseball for the entire month of July. And, you know, they had a horrible road trip. Uh, through Oakland and Seattle, one and six, to allow a couple of teams back into the picture in the wild card race. You know, Seattle is now tied with them after gaining four games in the standings. And it seems as though the, the manager, Charlie Montoyo, lost the clubhouse in some respects. You know, there were certain aspects where he was probably lacking a little bit. And I guess the big takeaway is why did this happen now and not before the season, I think is sort of where I have ended up falling on. It's, it, and that's an interesting take, because when you look at the stats, uh, that wasn't a bad season last year. I mean, 91-71. I mean, they didn't make the playoffs, but that's only because the Red Sox won an extra inning game the last game of the season and, and eliminated the Blue Jays. Uh, and the Red Sox got into the playoffs and, of course, you know, had a pretty good showing until they ran into Houston. But you wonder, okay, how, the, how would the Jays have done? Because the pitching was pretty decent. They had a lot of things going. And I guess maybe maybe what they're thinking there, Josh, is you can't fire a manager – after a 91-71 season. Uh, it sounds now, as what we heard yesterday from Ross Atkins, that uh, they had reservations about it then, but they didn't act on it. Yeah, I think that that is, is uh, as much as anything, a, a damning uh, revelation that uh, they, and they handed him a one-year extension back in yeah. April with two club options. And, you know, you, you sign a, a manager to that or anyone to that kind of extension that's sort of a pseudo extension. It's not really that much of a, a strong endorsement because you're basically just taking the lame duck off of him. If you didn't, he'd be in the final year of his deal this year. But it wasn't as though, yeah, this guy's firmly our man long term. It was, well, okay, we, he did a pretty good job last year. He navigated through some difficult situations. You know, the Blue Jays basically barely played uh, in Toronto. He probably managed more games as a home manager outside of Rogers center in Toronto than he did uh, in the end with uh, you know, a couple of seasons worth uh, of games in Buffalo and Dunedin, but it never felt like they were that committed to him as the manager when the team was supposed to be good again. He was the guy who was going to get them sort of back on the rails a little bit as they were coming out of that rebuild. And I think that he did mostly a solid job in that regard, but there were certain tactical things that I think he left something to be desired. And, and in terms of, you know, really commanding the clubhouse. I think that that also was an issue. And it just is a, a, a puzzler that, you know, if you had some reservations, which you clearly did in handing him this type of extension, why not make a move before the season to give, you know, whether it was now interim manager John Schneider a chance to start fresh instead of trying to adjust on the fly. It's just, it's tough to, even with somebody who's already on the staff, mid-season to you know, make those adjustments and, and get the team playing better and, and, and just, you know, be able to handle that as best as you possibly can. It just seems like you're stacking the deck a little bit against uh, a, somebody like a John Schneider in season. So the, the optics of doing it now as opposed to doing it before the season are really where I have been most confused, I would say. Let's talk about expectations. I mean, you know, we, as I say, all the obstacles that these guys had to overcome last year, uh, you know, playing on the road, home game, Buffalo, et cetera, 
uh, and and not a bad season, ninety one seventy one, just missing the playoffs. Were the expectations too high? Because you know the the theme I heard from an awful lot of people, I'm sure you guys did too in Toronto, was just wait till we have a whole season back home. Look at this lineup. Look at the way these guys are hitting. Uh, the pitching is going to. We're, we're just you know we're going to challenge for the the, the, the pen, the American League East. Uh, it's it's ours for the taking. I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm overstating it a little, but there was a really really high expectation. Even coming out of spring training, I thought, yeah, you know what, we're going to be okay. And they just weren't. Uh, just everything yeah, just yeah. that they thought was going to be there is just didn't materialize this year. No. Is that all on the manager? I, no, no, it, it absolutely isn't. And I, I think I'm guilty of it. A lot of people are guilty of it. You know, you talk about, like you mentioned, 91 wins last year, considering a lot of extenuating circumstances. Yeah, they lost some key contributors. They lost Cy Young winner they lost an mvp finalist and robbie ray and marcus simeon they replaced them um and everyone was expecting you know the young stars they had great years last year they're going to do that again they're only going to get better and then in hindsight you know it's hard for vladimir guerrero jr to almost hit 50 home runs and threaten for the triple crown and he's had a step back season bo Bichette hasn't had a great year teoscar hernandez was hurt he hasn't had a great year a lot of the guys that carry the load offensively haven't been as consistent as they were last year you know, coming into the season, I think a lot of people expected the rotation to be better than it was. Uh, yep. Ryu gets hurt. Kikuchi's been terrible. He's now on the injured list with a kind of, a, I think, a phantom injury just to reset a little bit. Bullpen hasn't been good. I think the bullpen uh, should have been looked at again as an issue. They didn't do enough to address it. And the, the old adage, when you underperform relative to expectations, usually in any sport, it's the coach or in this case, the manager who bears the brunt because you're not going to fire all the players. It's just not the way that it works. You try and make some trades to address some needs. I assume that they will do that. And Charlie Montoya was always going to be the first casualty as opposed to Ross Atkins. You know, Ross Atkins, I think, signed a five-year extension uh, not too long ago. He has a little bit more job security, but I don't think if things, uh, if things don't materialize in a positive way this year, he will definitely be in some jeopardy as well. But you know, the manager is a small cog in the machine. Like you heard yesterday, players got to play better. Ross Atkins has to build a better team, has to get some reinforcements in here. But the managers, it's just an easy domino to knock over when you're not performing relative to expectations, which the Blue Jays absolutely haven't so far this yeah, season. Because there were some prognosticators, uh, you know, as they broke camp, uh, you know, and head north here, they, they were arguing that the Jays have probably had the best rotation in the American League East. Uh, and uh, on paper, they still do. Sadly, the paper, though, is the injured list. Uh, because, And that's not the manager's fault. I mean, you can't do much about that, can you? No, you can't. And and uh, a lot of people are saying, you know, why was the lineup the way that it was? Why is Bo Bichette, you know, batting second? There were some, some certain, certainly some strategic tactical decisions that uh, left something to be desired. I honestly didn't think that he did that bad of a job this year, Montoyo, in that regard. I thought the last couple of years there were more head-scratching decisions. But, you know, people get upset about the bullpen and the usage of certain relievers in, in high-leverage spots that maybe their talent doesn't dictate. And I can sympathize with that a little bit. But at the same time, you look at, especially the bullpen here, there's not really an overflowing, you know, reserve of quality options that you can trust in big spots. And, what are you supposed to do when you don't really have that much talent there? You're just sort of navigating as best as you can with the hand that you've been dealt. So, you know, Ross Atkins said yesterday that 
uh, he basically takes ownership for what happened here and or what is happening here and some of the deficiencies in the roster. And that's all well and good. But you're admitting that you have built a flawed roster and you still have a job while the guy who was basically managing at your behest with the roster that you've built, you know, is the one who's on the uh, on the unemployment line now. So I, that's sort of the way it works. You know, you as a manager or general manager, front office type, you have a bullet to fire in the sense that, you know, you can fire the manager. But once you fire the manager, now you're squarely in the crosshairs. If you're Ross Atkins and to some extent, Mark Shapiro, the team president, like you sort of insulate yourself a little bit when your handpicked manager is here. Once he's gone, yeah, it's still sort of your handpicked guy and John Schneider, but everyone is going to be looking now exclusively at the front office. If this team is unable to get back uh, on track and make the postseason and perform closer to preseason expectations, everything will fall now at the feet of Ross Atkins. And I think that that is the way that it should be because ultimately he is the one who built this team and you can blame the players for sure, but he has to wear a lot of the responsibility if this team ends up falling short of where everyone expected they would. And, and here we are, you know, talking in the middle of July, about what's going on. I don't know that anybody could have predicted uh, in, in April, you know, as they, as they started the season, Josh, what was going to happen in the American league East. I mean, because the expectation was that the Jays were going to be steady challenges in first place and maybe even win the division. Uh, the Yankees have left everybody in their dust. I mean, nobody saw that coming. And we knew the Yankees were improved this year, uh, but they've exceeded all expectations. Even Baltimore is playing respectable baseball now. You know, they're on a winning streak, and they're, they're not a laughing stock anymore. So this was the worst time for a team to start to stumble. It sure was. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Nobody saw the Yankees threatening an all-time pace of, of wins. And, and they've slipped a little bit of late, but nobody had that um, in their preseason picks. And, and that obviously changed the equation. But I think the disappointing thing is take that into account. The rest of the division, Baltimore has been a pleasant surprise. No doubt they've won 10 mm -hmm. in a row. Every team in this division is above 500, which is a good indicator of what a gauntlet it is, which is sort of the case every year. But you look at Boston and Tampa Bay they haven't really been particularly good this year. A lot of inconsistency, some injuries. Neither one has really had uh, a strong season considering, you know, where they were last year. Rays won 100 plus games, won the division. Red Sox made it to the league championship series. But the Blue Jays are still right neck and neck. There was an opportunity to really separate yourself as the second best team in the division behind the Yankees and maybe the third best team in the league behind the Yankees and the Astros. And the Jays just have been unable to do that. And now you're in this dogfight. You know, there's three wildcard teams this year with the expanded playoff format. And you look at the standings, there's a half dozen teams that are all within four or five games of each other. And that's the issue that the Blue Jays have had with the way that they've played of late is that they just not only have they not been able to separate, they've allowed other teams to stay within a stone's throw of them. And if you don't find a way to get your team playing better, you're very susceptible to having teams pass you in the standings and being in a really difficult position in August and September to try and make the playoffs. And to say that uh, is the case when, you know, the expectations were what they were and there was going to be an expanded playoff format and you thought that the road to making the playoffs might be a bit easier is nothing but a disappointment. Like so far, 
to say that this season is anything other than a very big disappointment bordering on a failure in some uh, respects is an understatement. It's been a, a very difficult season so far, and they have to find a way to start playing better. Well, uh, John Schneider's first game as manager uh, last night, they won. They did beat Philadelphia last night. Uh, a different kind of guy, uh, a guy who's, you know, he's paid his dues to going through the organization. Uh, he's interim, of course, at this situation. Uh, can he turn this team around? I, I, you know, Bill, I'm, I'm always cautious when it comes to managers, especially in season managerial changes and how much credit or blame uh, should be thrown at their feet based on how the team performs. Like you look, there were a couple of other changes. You know, the Angels fired Joe Madden. They've been terrible since they fired him. And I think that just more speaks to their flawed roster, whereas the Phillies fired Joe Girardi and they've been uh, well above 500. And I think that to some extent it can, it can kind of give you a little bit of a boost initially. Just the players – realize, okay, like there are no excuses here. Manager's been fired. We have to find a way to start playing better. And I think to some extent that that is very true. Maybe a different voice, uh, just a different energy can allow you to reach your potential a little bit more, play a little bit better. But I think at the end of the day, the players just have to pick themselves up and play better baseball. And John Schneider, I think, is probably going to be a better voice to reach some of these players. Sometimes after a while, the voice gets stale and you just get to a point as a professional athlete where, where maybe the message just isn't being received anymore and you need somebody else to come in to provi provide a different perspective. And I do think that that is going to be the case here. But the Jays are only going to go as far or not as far on the backs of their players. And Schneider might be able to put them in a better position to win some ball games. Like he called a couple of hit and runs to success last night. They stole a couple of bases. But, you know, Ross Stripling gave you seven quality innings. You hit a bunch of yeah. home runs, and you won a game comfortably. And John Schneider, I don't think, can really dictate stuff like that. Like, I, I've been saying of late, this seems like more of a talented, talented team right now than a good team. And they have to start playing like a good team that has talent as well, as opposed to maybe not being as good uh, as the sum of their parts. And it's incumbent on them as much as anything, uh, more than the manager in, in my mind. Well, and that's that's the the gist of it, I guess. Really, you know, I, I mean, you know, they, they went what two and nine the last eleven games. They could go nine and two from here on into that. That's the kind of team they are. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, as always, uh, with switches like this, whether or not it's going to have an impact. Uh, Josh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Enjoy it all as always, Bill. Have a good day. Take care, Josh Goldberg, who of course uh, covers baseball for the Score. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.